Welcome to Engaging History. My name is Christopher Kinsella, author of Chain of Deception. I'm a professor of history at Cuyahoga Community College in Northeast Ohio. My podcasts are not endorsed by any individual or organization. This podcast is my opinion and interpretation of the historical events that I will discuss. The purpose of the podcasts are in general to discuss American and world history in a way that engages you and explains so much of the country and the world around you. But I also discuss it in a way that is understandable and interesting. Welcome back to the 38th podcast in our series in the second half of American history. In the last podcast, I introduced the Cold War. We looked at the GIs coming back from the European and Pacific theaters and even from various parts of the United States to attempt to, quote unquote, live back or get back to a normal life. We looked at the housing shortages, the baby boom. We then looked at the administration of President Harry Truman as he's the first president that's going to have to navigate and what becomes known as the Cold War. And then we ended by looking at the awesome, in a negative way, impact of nuclear weapons and reviewed that game, that puzzle called the dollar game. So how do Americans move forward with what becomes known as living in the Cold War? Bottom line is that Americans, as well as our Soviet counterparts, lived under a false sense of safety and security. That's a a loaded statement for me to make, but it was the truth. And the reason being is that because of the just beyond comprehensive, comprehensible, devastating effects of nuclear weapons, you really just could not, with any sense of confidence, protect yourself and your home or your dwelling as you knew it, as you would hope to have it after the quote-unquote bombs detonate. And to demonstrate this, rather than talk about anything more or even quote any particular scholar or author, I just bring them two pieces of evidence. And that were the two documents that I wish in some cases that I could share with my, my listeners, but they're two documents that were basically, that were sent out by the Office of Civil Defense, in other words, a subsidiary of the United States Department of Defense, and what they were booklets on what we could do to our homes to try to survive a nuclear war, a nuclear detonation near us. And in these booklets, to try to attempt to explain some of the diagrams that will one would see when reading this booklet, to try to understand the Cold War. The average person would not understand the brand new terminology, which is the reason why these booklets start out, no kidding, with a glossary. You have to get familiar with these new terms that prior to the war, the average person never would have had to concern themselves with. Things like fallout, megaton, kiloton, weapon yield, fallout protection center, nuclear, atomic. Yes, we somewhat played around with that. I, I truly mean played around with that figuratively speaking with different types of ways that corporate America 
embraced this new age. Bars created or taverns created new drinks called atomic cocktails. Heck, the game of life. If anybody remembers playing the game of life, depending upon where that spinner landed, you could find yourself landing on a small ore of uranium that warranted, if my memory serves me correct, you to win $240,000 because a, an element, an atom, that was once seen nothing more as a nuisance, now becomes one of the most coveted natural forming atoms the world has ever known. All of this is brand new to people in the United States and the Soviet Union. So these fallout protection places or shelters that one could build either underneath their home, if they were under with new construction or next to their home, you can do all of these things to build either with sandbags and cinder block or a combination thereof. So let's just assume best case scenario, the Cold War sirens, the nuclear sirens go off and mom and dad and the little girl, the little boy or both, they run into their shelter as there are diagrams of this in these booklets that I'm talking about, that, the, my, that I show my students. I don't even describe them. I put them on the document camera. They can see for themselves that there's literally a picture of a woman. It looks like she's reading something to her daughter. And then the husband is to the woman's right, who is monitoring something outside of the shelter through a tube. Most likely he would be looking at, looking outside to see what the world was looking like after a nuclear detonation had taken place. But literally, the little girl is smiling and the mom is smiling and the dad kind of has a plain or even in some cases of a determined look on his face. So yes, we live in the age of the nuclear, nuclear holocaust now, but that's okay why dad checks the oxygen outside, why he checks what's going on outside of that shelter the mom is just reading a bedtime story so the little girl can go to bed peacefully and hoping the bed bugs don't bite as she dreams wonderful things. Folks, it was all false. Because again, let's assume that the nuclear detonation, that ground zero wasn't too far from that shelter, but it was far enough that it would not be devastated by the initial nuclear blast, by the hurricane force winds they eventually are going to run out of stored water. They're going to run out of stored food. They may even run out of breathable air. They're going to have to leave that shelter eventually in order to do this thing called live. And when they do, what kind of world are they coming out to? A world, again, as I mentioned in the last podcast, that they cannot eat any vegetation that might have survived the blast for the same reason they couldn't drink any potable water because it would have been contaminated with radioactive waste. And that's assuming, assuming the air that they're breathing still doesn't have particulates of nuclear fallout. In other words, these shelters, in some cases, yes, might have protected its inhabitants from an initial nuclear blast and death in seconds or milliseconds to a very painful elongated death at some point down the line, whether it due to again, radiation sickness or radiation poisoning, 
dehydration from not finding any potable sources of water, and or starvation. Wow, what a menu to choose from. What a future to look forward to. And if that wasn't bad enough, what was going on within the confines of the United States proper, countries around the world that had been dominated by a handful of European countries are now finding themselves independent because the colonizing countries like Italy, France, Great Britain, Portugal, Spain, England, Germany, they can no longer colonize. Japan cannot hold on to its pre-World War II colonize, colonies. Their economies are devastated. Their countries are ruined. Their harbors are blown out. They're lucky if they have enough money to try to feed their own people within the confines of their own geographic boundary versus worrying about their former overseas colonies. No, independence didn't happen overnight in all cases. Sometimes those former European countries in Japan tried to hang on to its colonies, but it wasn't going to be able to do so for long. The indigenous people that have been subjected to foreign rule for decades or centuries in some cases saw that weakness and attempted their own overthrow of the colonizing powers. Now, that's one thing for that to happen before the age of nuclear weapons. But that's a whole different ball game after. Remember again that prior to World War I in 1914, 84% of all land on earth was owned by a handful of countries. With another 7.9% locked under ice in Antarctica, there was only a small portion of land that wasn't flying a foreign flag. That those days for many of those countries are coming to an end. But what do they do now? They had been used to living under foreign rule again for decades or centuries in some cases. How do they move forward now? What will their economic system be? What will their political system be? For my American listeners, just look back to our own American history. It took us eight years to fight the British, for them to get the message that, hey, we don't want to fly the British flag anymore. We're done. We're going to fly our own flag. And for eight years, Washington and the boys tried to drive that message home and ultimately prevailed in October of 1781. But then what? Oh, wait, that's right. We just immediately got it, adopted our Constitution, and it was a golden days ahead of us. No. We wrote up something called the Articles of Confederation, which was so weak it wasn't worth the parchment that it was written on. That's the reason why two-thirds of the average British colonists in North America wanted nothing to do with independence. Because they would ask the founding fathers, they would ask Washington and the army, okay, great, we beat Great Britain. What's our economic system? I don't know. What will our political system be? We haven't thought that far yet. What will our economic, our form of currency be? They hadn't thought of that. You can't do that many things at once. Either you're fighting for independence or you're trying to form a country. And we fell flat on our faces by creating a form of government called the Confederation Congress that again was so weak. But why? Because it was formed by a group of men 
that were desperately fearful of creating a government that was too strong. So out of a form of PTSD, we created something that was way too weak, which was in some cases just as dangerous. What do these indigenous people in the Korean Peninsula, in Southeast Asia, South Asia, countries in the modern day Middle East, former countries that went down the spine of Africa and across the lintel of Africa, with those European powers now pulling out the stops and withdrawing, how do they navigate in a post-World War II world? Well, America didn't have the answer either, but we knew one thing, that if those countries were open to foreign influence, America was just as happy to swoop in with our very strong economy and try to fill those gaps and answer those questions for them. But again, this isn't a world absent of nuclear weapons. Nuclear weapons are now part of the modern day strategy, a modern day political and military landscape. As a result, the Soviet Union says, oh, no, you don't, America. If country A just was able to overthrow their European or Asian colonizing mother country and are now trying to formulate independence on their own and America is going to swoop in to try to help out Soviet Union, they're going to do the exact same thing. And so too, when the Soviet Union looked at a republic or a formerly independent country that has now won back its independence, Soviet Union wants to swoop in with its influence, and America's there to counter that punch. This again explains the future East and West Germany, North and South Korea, North and South Vietnam. This is the political reality of the United States moving forward. As a result, the United Nations is created Yes, yet another international organization that like the, on the heels of the League of Nations, the, Con the Concert of Europe, and these other international institutions, you'd never guess what their goal is. Yeah, you right, to prevent war. And if my listeners are rolling their eyes, don't worry about it. So am I when I present this to my classes, because it is yet another organization whose primary motivation for being its central thesis is to try to have a political venue, a discussion table for countries to discuss future political, military, economic, or geopolitical differences. However, unlike every other international organization like it that came before, the United Nations will not fall apart when conflict breaks out. And that is the one distinct difference. With the, United, with the United Nations. Please know I'm beyond working feverishly here to hold back on explaining about the United Nations more, much less giving my opinion, etc. 
and I've in at in graduate school I took a class on nothing but the United Nations was actually taught by an individual an American who worked in the United Nations so I had firsthand account about the way this organization works and I know it receives a lot of criticism and yes some praise as well and it will be part of our discussion of the remaining podcasts all the way through to the current events that I end this series with eventually when we get there but the United Nations, they can't do anything that can keep America and the Soviet Union from going toe to toe in these newly independent countries. On top of that, an expert American diplomat by the name of George Kennan will send a very long telegram known as the X telegram, where he will lay out from the Soviet Union proper that the, that the Soviet Union, in order for them to succeed, they have to expand. They have to push their geopolitical boundaries forward. He described it like a snowball. And the snowball, in order for it to get bigger, you must continue to roll it on the ground or pack it with new snow. If it doesn't, it collapses. That's the reason why the United States and our allies drew an invisible line around all of the territories that the Soviet Union was dominating as World War II came to a close. And we would go out of our way and do everything we could to make sure that the Soviet Union did not acquire one more inch of territory anywhere in the world. What you say is wrong with compromise. If the Soviet Union tried to overtake the Korean Peninsula, the area of modern day Vietnam and Southeast Asia, or all of Germany, how about compromise? How about negotiating? No, folks, remember the average age of America's leaders. They've witnessed too much carnage, too much horror in the 20th century alone. They are not going to be, a, there's not going to be another Neville Chamberlain 1938 moment when that former Prime Minister of Great Britain shook that document with Hitler's signature and said, I have established peace in our time. Hitler will acquire no new territory when in fact Hitler was just beginning. No. We don't believe in compromising with dictators. We don't believe in negotiating with command economies like the Soviet Union had. Sorry, that ship sailed. We will do everything we can militarily, economically, and politically to make sure that the Soviet Union doesn't expand. To qualify this, to describe this, ironically enough, nobody does that better with the infamous term that eventually becomes famous spoken by the also former prime minister of, of Great Britain, who will then become prime minister again later on, known as Winston Churchill, went to a graduating class in March of 1947. He said to that audience, despite the fact of his advisor saying not to speak this boldly, he said that with the Soviet occupation in countries of Eastern Europe, that compared to the countries under the Soviet rule, compared to countries that are under their own rule, he said that an iron curtain has fallen that is dividing Eastern Europe from Western Europe and other areas of the globe.
it was unfortunately so accurate. And it will be decades before an American leader has that courage to speak so boldly, calling the Soviet Union what it was, and taking action because of those terms, because of their ideology. In terms of U.S. intervention, we started off with these newly independent countries that had fought for their independence from the colonizing European countries or Japan. President Truman passed what became known as the Truman Doctrine, which was $400 million in aid to specifically Greece and Turkey. Turkey would receive $150 million of American aid. Greece received $250 million for a $400 million total package. It was money that aided those countries. Please know there were no strings attached. There were ropes attached, chains attached. I'm not decrying the United States actions, but that money was not gleefully handed out and wishing them well. That money was handed out with the, notion, with the knowledge that they would resist Soviet communism, that they would not allow communist, the communist economic systems or political system like a dictatorship to take hold in those countries at the time that the money was granted to them. Taking that idea and putting it on a massive set of steroids was now Secretary of State, five-star General George Marshall, and what became known as the Marshall Plan. If you thought $400 million was a lot of money, to give you an idea how much America was earning, how wealthy we were as a result of the war, George Marshall's plan would eventually cost $13 billion. But like the Truman Doctrine, the Marshall Plan was designed to contain communism, to push that Soviet rule to the very, very border that it obtained as they were pushing back against Hitler's Nazi Germany. The Soviet response was the attempt to do the same thing in kind. Germany was split, eastern half under Soviet domination, western half under Allied domination. And when I mean Allied, I mean a French sector, a British sector, and an American sector. Collectively, a western sector, a western half. In response to the Truman Doctrine and the Marshall Plan, Stalin attempted to assert his authority on the world stage by taking the capital, former capital of all of Germany, Berlin, which was also divided in half. The eastern half for Berlin, of course, belonging to the Soviet Union, the western half belonging to the United States and our allies. Now, you might be scratching your head and saying, wait a minute, how does that work out? Because East Germany... Berlin was in the smack middle of that, technically over to the east. How does that get divided? There was a single artery of, of transportation allowed from West Germany to West Berlin. To reassert his authority, Stalin simply eliminated that road. Okay, America and you allies... You want to pass that Truman plan? You want to push that Marshall plan? Have at it. 
but how are you going to even help just the people of West Berlin when I have cut off all access? That's what prompted Harry Truman to launch what became known as the Berlin Airlift. From June of 1948 to May of 1949, America was sending planes from Western Europe, in some cases taking off every 45 seconds at times, with all everything that people would need to survive. And we were airdropping it over West Berlin. America and our allies were looking stronger and stronger the more the longer that the blockade continued to stay into effect. And the stronger we looked, the weaker the Soviet Union was looking. And as a result, Stalin lifted the blockade in June of 1948. So I'm sorry, I may have had those years wrong. It went from May of 1940, excuse me, June of 1948 to May of 1949. So finally in May of 49, he lifted that. And from there, America looked so unbelievably strong. Now, we cannot, in the age of nuclear weapons, in the age now of, for them, instant communication, let's face it, with our attack, with the attack on the United States military base at Pearl Harbor, Hawaii, it's a reality now that those two massive moats called the Pacific Ocean and the Atlantic Ocean no longer have any benefit to us. With the world now of submarines, of aircraft carriers, of, of air travel that is succeeding in, in each generation faster and faster, the world is becoming a smaller and smaller place. As a result, America was forced to centralize our U.S. intelligence. We broke down now into two halves between what the FBI did, which was internal or domestic investigations, breaking that off from an organization, an espionage and intelligence organization that is strictly for international events, international uh, situations. And that, of course, would become known as the CIA, which is the reason why that was formed in 1947, the Central Intelligence Agency. At the same time, the President Truman outlines the organization for something called the NSC, the National Security Council, also started in 1947, which is and was at this time the very first meeting every morning for the President of the United States and would be for subsequent presidents all the way through the current president, Joe Biden, number 46. Whether it's always the first thing in the morning throughout the decades, of course, is debatable, but the national security briefings is one of the most important briefings that the United States president receives five, if not six, or seven days a week, depending upon international events. But America realized that our intelligence gathering had to have a massive shakeup. We did not want to be caught off guard the way we were with Pearl Harbor, the way we were with Joseph Stalin that started that Berlin blockade. He, the president, realized that we needed better feet on the ground, ears throughout the world, eyes throughout the world, to alert the president and our National Security Administration to be able to respond to events 
as they're happening or preferably before they happen rather than to be caught flat-footed after the event hap after the event happens this intelligence infrastructure will remain in place and by and large not shaken up again until sadly the 21st century after 9-11. It was after 9-11 and because of that event that the then American president, number 43, George W. Bush, recognized that something had to be done with our intelligence gathering to be caught so off guard as a result that 9-11 could be allowed to happen. So with these intelligence organizations, with that creation now of the United Nations, America still did not fully feel as though its borders were protected and certainly our European allies also felt under the threat of that looming Soviet Union, a, a, a country that spanned more than 10 time zones that was looming just to its east. Our allies and the United States proper wanted more protection militarily than the United Nations was designed to provide. That's what would lay out the template for what we would call the creation of America's military alliance called NATO, the North Atlantic Treaty Organization formed, you guessed it, in 1949. What does the Soviet Union do? they create the same thing called the Warsaw Pact. I ask you to pause it here as I'm gonna end the podcast anyhow, and just look up in a search term for your search engine, NATO and Warsaw Pact map, and just click on images. And preferably you'll see the one that comes up that I show my class where NATO is in blue and the Warsaw Pact is in red. And what comes to your mind? Not a semblance of security, but rather the horror that the world map once looked like that before, specifically in Europe, which paved the way for the very first world war. Do you remember those terms? The Triple Alliance and the Triple Entente? Yes, these pacts were more than just three countries which could make a future war that much more horrific. Thank you for listening. See you for our 39th podcast as we continue our discussion of the Cold War in United States history. Have a great week.